Well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Uh, while you're finding it, uh, let me just very quickly try and set up what it is we're going to be talking about. If you've ever really read the Bible seriously, you, you'll know it contains some remarkable promises. It's like from the moment I first started reading the Bible many years ago now, uh, I, I kind of stumble across these promises of God that would stir and move and create worship in me. And they became this kind of driving force behind me studying and digging into the Word even more. I mean, you, you come across a text like Romans 8 verse 28 that says, all things work for good for those who love him. It's like everything in your life, everything that comes along, every bit of joy, every bit of sorrow, every single moment is come through the sovereign God's hand right into your life for your good. I mean, this changes everything. It, it, it transforms every dark patch I go through. It changes every time I get sick. It changes every mountaintop experience, every bit of sorrow, every valley I go through. It transforms all those feelings of despair and loneliness and frustration, absolutely everything. And so in that moment, coming across this verse is powerful. All things, everything working together for my good, which means God loves me in such a way that sometimes he's even willing to allow me to suffer in order to make me more mature, to show me, to demonstrate to me, to enable me to experience more of his love for me. All things work together for good for those who love him. And then several years into my walk with God, I can't tell you the relief of coming across Philippians 1 verse 6 where it says, he, that's God, who began a good work in you. It's like God saying, I'm the one who started this in you. It wasn't you. You didn't initiate this whole thing. I started it. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the end. And so now, all of a sudden, there's this promise that I haven't been abandoned. I haven't been left alone. And, and that even in what feels at times like the most stagnant, dry, sterile periods of time, God is still growing me into maturity. He, he's finishing what he has started in me. That's another remarkable promise. And then there's 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 where you've got this promise that no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. I mean, how reassuring is that? that there is no sin that has to master me because God is always going to give me an escape route. He's never going to let me face anything that, with the Holy Spirit's help, I don't have the power to walk right away from. He's never going to let the circumstance occur in my life where it is just inevitably going to result in me sinning. Because he's always going to give me a way out. I love these promises. And really, we could go on and on and on and on. I mean, there are dozens more. But here's what I want to address today. Here's what I want us to begin talking about. What do we do with these promises 
when it appears to us very much like they are impossible. Like, what do we do with God's promise that all things are working for my good when it is impossible to imagine any good coming out of the situation we're living with? What do we do with that promise in that moment? What do we do with the promise of God that He's leading us into good after four months, six months, eight months, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months of overwhelming pain? What do we do with that promise? How do we respond to the God who made it? And what do we do with He who began a good work in us will faithfully bring it to completion when with all variables taken into account it seems like we've very much been abandoned? It seems like there's no growth there, that we're stuck in the same sins, that we're stuck in the same rut. What do we do with the promise in that moment? And I don't know if you ever try to concentrate on this verse where God promises He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and it feels like victory is a billion light years away. I don't know, maybe you've got this sin that haunts you, that stalks you, that at any weak moment pounces on you. It, it seems like no matter how disciplined you try to be or how carefully you try to orchestrate the details of your life, it continually creeps up and overcomes you. I mean, what do you do with this text when your sin is very much controlling you? To put it in real terms, how do we handle these promises when somebody we love dies? What do we do with these promises when we get sick? I'm not talking about man flu here, I'm talking about the kind of sick that changes the way the rest of our life will play out. What do we do with these promises when we get betrayed? What do we do with these promises when our love is rejected? I go on and on and on with that list because life can be incredibly hard at times. What do we do with promises that just seem absurd, that seem impossible? What do we do with them? Well, I love where Luke goes here. Luke is going to tell us two stories here in chapter one. He's going to tell of a guy called Zachariah who is an old man. I mean, a really, 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 really old man. And then he's going to tell the story of a young woman, a young girl. By most people's accounts, they think she's 13, 14, 15, that, that kind of age. And both of these individuals, both of these characters get crazy promises from God and they both handle it in very different ways. So as we consider this question, how do we handle the promises of God when they seem ridiculous, when they seem absurd, when they seem impossible, when they seem a billion light years away? How how do we handle the promises of God? As we look at these verses here in Luke, I think we're going to see what not to do and what to do. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, 
Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot, not the individual lot, by the rolling of dice. He was chosen by the rolling of dice to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burnt, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken. He was overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He has never touched wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. What a promise. Now, just to backtrack, you need to understand, Zachariah and Elizabeth have spent almost their whole lives pleading with God for a child. And, and they've lived their whole lives in this culture, in this society that views being barren, being childless as evidence that you have done something that has upset God. It's like people back then equated not having children with being cursed by God. You imagine the agony, the, the, the sheer sorrow of wanting children and not being able to have them, uh, and that frustration and despair being compounded by a society that thinks you are some kind of sinner being punished by God. Imagine living with that pain while all the time continuing to serve God faithfully. That's how it was for Zachariah and Elizabeth. They've served God faithfully for all of those years. They've been pleading for a child. They've begged for some kind of legacy, but they've never got it. And now that they are both senior citizens, this angel shows up and says, you're going to have a son. And not only are you going to have a son, but there will never be a greater man born to woman. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. We're going to look at Zachariah's response. Verse 18. Zachariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Now, if you try and put yourself into Zachariah's shoes, I guess you can kind of understand his question here. Quite apart from not wanting to raise his hopes after so many years of disappointment, he and his wife are also well along in years. In other words, for them to have children would require something of a double miracle. So he feels the need for a little more proof here. But the angel doesn't quite see it that way. This angel is pretty indignant with this response. Verse 19, then the angel said... I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. 
I want you to get what's going on here. It's like the promise of God goes out in the moment. There are all these reasons why it's absurd, why it's ridiculous, why it's just craziness. The promise goes out and Zachariah is there thinking, how on earth can this possibly happen? I'm old. My wife is no spring chicken either. This just doesn't make any sense to me. And so he says, I'm going to need a little more information than this. I need a little more evidence, some kind of a sign. And Gabriel's like, need I remind you who I am? I'm Gabriel. I I stand in the very presence of God. I'm a servant and messenger from the God who you are in here lighting incense to. Verse 20, but now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. The promise goes out, Zachariah won't receive it, and follow me here because I think we all play this game at times. If you think back to those moments where the promises of God are so hard for you to believe, we all have reasons why those promises can't be true for us. It's as if God is unaware of the things that we're facing in our lives, our situation, our circumstances when the promise goes out. And this is what Zechariah does. He's saying, this is why that can't be true for me. This is why really this isn't true for me. Let's be honest. I think we've all been guilty at one time or another of going, that promise isn't valid for me because of fill in the blank, because I've done this, because this is my past, because this is who I am, because this has been such a problem for me for so long. It's like we discredit the power and sovereign authority of God over the entire universe because of our own personal set of circumstances. That's pretty much what Zachariah is doing here. But now, I want you to step back a little further and and try and see all of this from Gabriel's perspective. I, I want you to try and understand why he's so indignant with this. You see, he's thinking, here's this guy who's been crying out for 60, 70, 80 years for a son. And I'm going to tell him he's finally getting one. I mean, this is a great job, God. Thanks for choosing me to be the messenger. So excited about this. He shows up, Zachariah, this is the most fantastic, the greatest news in the universe. Zachariah's going, how can that happen? I'm old. My my wife's older than old. Sorry, I'm going to need a little more proof here. Gabriel's thinking, really? More proof than me showing up? Remember, when you first saw me, you were shaken and overwhelmed with fear. You're this kind of quivering wreck on the floor. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not enough. And so, Gabriel shuts Zachariah's mouth, literally. Now, let me be really clear about what's going on here, because I think what could happen here, if you're not careful, fear could creep in. You could be thinking, oh no, God's going to destroy me because I've doubted. But as we'll find out the week after next, what's actually happening is God is disciplining Zachariah because he loves him. 
And as we'll see, after all of this, Zachariah is going to explode in worship like never before in his whole life. Listen, God does discipline us at times. Not because he's full of wrath against us, but because he's full of love. And let me be really honest with you, because the older I get, the more I believe this. The wrath of God is best seen when he does absolutely nothing about your sin, when he allows you to keep on walking in it. That's when I think the wrath of God can be seen most clearly, because God's going, all right, keep pretending. Keep keep chasing after that stuff. I I know it's going to harm you. I see where this is going for you, but I'm doing nothing. I'm not going to intervene. That's the wrath of God. The love of God shows itself most vividly when God comes along and says, no more. I'm not going to allow you to keep sinning like this any longer. I'm not going to allow you to keep walking in that loneliness and that despair, but we're going to have to get there through a little bit of surgery. And surgery can hurt a bit at times. So, Zachariah's response to the promises of God was, I just don't believe it. And here's why I don't believe it. I don't believe it because of this, 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 and this. If you answer these questions to me, then maybe I will believe. It's, It's a heart full of pride. It's full of doubt that God is able to do what he says. He he believes that his own individual circumstances trump the power and authority of God. And really, I think it's God's infinite love towards Zachariah that seals up his mouth before he can talk himself into even more trouble. Then the story moves on. And here's where we begin to see the contrast. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings favoured woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. I love that line because you're already seeing a difference between Zachariah's response and Mary's response. Gabriel shows up and says, greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. And Mary's like, who are you talking to? Someone else in the room that I hadn't noticed here before? Are you mistaking me for someone else? I don't know, I'm the favoured one of God. Verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, If you think about it, this is just as absurd a promise as Zachariah got when the angel showed up and said, despite your age, you're going to conceive a son who will prepare the way for the Messiah. Because now you've got a young woman 
who's not royalty in Roman-occupied Israel. And the angel is saying, despite the fact that you aren't married, despite the fact you have never been with a man, despite the fact that in your knowledge you're not of any royal lineage, you're going to give birth to a child whose kingdom will never, ever, 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 ever end. This is just as crazy as the promise that went out to Zechariah, just as implausible, just as improbable, just as impossible, just as much shock value. But look at Mary's response. Mary's response is so very different than Zechariah's. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Now, I suggest that's a very different question than the one Zechariah asked. Zechariah fires off why should I believe this? How, how can I know this? How is this going to be possible? G- g- give me some proof. Give me some more evidence. But Mary's response is more like, how in the world are you going to do that? It's impossible. But as we're going to see, it's more a sense of, if anyone can do it, I guess you can. It's like there's a humility in Mary that says, I don't understand how you're going to do it. I mean, how am I going to get pregnant when I haven't slept with a man before? I, I, I know you're able, but how on earth are you going to accomplish this? And whereas Zachariah's response resulted in him being struck mute, Gabriel gives Mary an explanation. Listen to this. Verse 35, the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. You can imagine Elizabeth even now come up in heaven, kind of, how can they not ever mention my name without mentioning that I'm an old woman? I mean, just give me some slack here. I mean, (laughs) Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. I think we've got the point. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. Forget this, nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded. This is where we see the humility coming through. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Now, I want you to try and let this sink in. We're we're familiar with the story. We we know what happens. We, We can miss something of the impact of it. Because do you not think Mary knows what's coming? Don't you think she knows how absurd the story is going to sound? Hey, Joseph, um, I'm pregnant. We're expecting a child. Joseph's got some questions. Like, how on earth is that possible? Well, I'm glad you asked, because while I was sweeping the kitchen, this angel appeared and said that this baby is the Holy Spirit's baby. I'm still trying to get my head around that. Trying to fathom how difficult that conversation must have been. And that's not the half of it. Mary would have known that according to the law, she was liable to be pelted with rocks until she died. She could have been stoned for this. But knowing what is going to occur, knowing what potentially could unfold... Mary still humbles herself and says, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. 
And I still don't fully understand. And if I'm being honest, I'm scared out of my mind. And most of this doesn't make any sense to me. But you're God. If you can let me understand how you're going to do this, it would really help me right now. But even if you don't, I'll trust that you'll do what you've said you'll do. Now here's the challenge. I think because of pain, because of sorrow, because of fear, some of us have become very indignant with God. It's like even now, we think He owes us an explanation. And don't hear me wrong, God's not a God of blind faith. Over and over again, even as we were saying last time, He he communicates His glory, He communicates His might, He reveals His power to us. But often what ends up happening in those dark times that we all go through is we forget everything that God has done for us in the past. It's like in that moment we forget. In the moment where it's our pain, where it's our frustration, where it's our fear, where we just feel exhausted, we're, we're, we're worn out, we're at the end of ourselves, we ignore the reality of God's goodness to us and we choose instead to shake our fist at him and accuse him of failing us. And in that moment, what we see from this story is that God may well lovingly discipline you. Don't hear me wrong, not with a baseball bat, but with a scalpel. To, to demonstrate that he is still God, he might have to delicately, tenderly cut some things out of our lives. But if you want to avoid that, and I guess probably most of us would quite like to avoid that, you need to know God responds very, very differently to the humble. It seems like the humble, that the one who through tears says, I don't understand, but I'm desperately trying to trust you here. I'm trying to believe, but I really don't understand how this could ever be working out for my good. It certainly doesn't feel like you're with me right now, but I want to resist the temptation, even in all of this, to sin against you. And you've promised a way out, but I'm struggling to see it right now. Please help me. It seems from this story that God honours the humble. Those are the people he draws near to. He speaks to them. He even gives them explanations, not always. Dozens of other stories that we could turn to where someone's like, what are you doing? And God's like, I'll show you in 40 years. There's no promise of an explanation. But even through the delay, he clothes the humble with strength. And so as we draw to a close, I just want to ask you a question. Because I think there's a question that we have to get to if we're going to make sense of any of this. Speaking mainly to the believers, the, the, the people in the room who, who know and follow Jesus. Here's my question for you. Do you believe that he loves you? Do you honestly, genuinely, deep down believe through it all, he loves you? Because I think that's the issue. Do you, do you think he's vindictive and angry with you? Or do you think he loves you? Now, I don't want to keep going on about it, but 
I'm still trying to get to the bottom of what God was trying to do in my life by taking me out with back pain for a large chunk of the last 12 months. But although even now, I, I don't fully understand it all. The sustaining thing that got, through, got me through it was the deep conviction that God does still love me. And listen, not some future version of me, but me as I am today, me as I am right now. And I know this isn't earth-shattering news for most of you. I mean, it's not like you haven't heard me say this before. I mean, wow, God loves us. I hadn't hadn't heard that one before. No, no, this isn't new news to us. But I can't tell you how often I plead with God to let you really grasp that right now He does love you. Do you really believe it? Because I think probably if pushed, most of us would say, yeah, he'll love us in the end. That's completely different than this deep conviction he loves you today. And if you're doubting it right now, that there is all of this objective evidence that he does. He loves you enough to say the hard things to you at times. He loves you enough to discipline you rather than turning a blind eye and letting you make a mess of things. He loves you enough to let his own son be crucified for you. Loves you enough to invite you personally into his family. Look, I could go on and on with objective evidences, but at the end of the day, do you know he loves you? And in the end, that that same Romans 8 passage says, nothing can separate you from that. Nothing, not sickness, not death, not persecution, not your own sin, your own stumbling. So often, I think we see our sin as this reason for God to not have anything to do with us. But God sees our sin as this monumental opportunity to glorify His name in forgiving us and healing us and mending us from it all. One of my other favourite scriptures, the one that says that all of our righteous deeds, all of our best attempts to be good, are like filthy rags before Him. I mean, how helpless are we that even the most impressive things we do are like that rag that's been in the kitchen sink four days longer than it probably should be? Or like that rag to use to clean the muck off your shoes. Now, I know some of you are slightly puzzled why that is one of my favourite verses, but here's why. It's because it means that God's love for me isn't based on things that I do or don't do. It's totally dependent on the sacrifice of Jesus for me on the cross. And if he would do that for me when I least deserved it, won't he now in Christ give me all things? So do you believe that he loves you? You, not an ambiguous us, not because you're good, you're not good. It has nothing to do with your merit. Not, not you at some distant point in the future when you've managed to work things out, but right now. Do you believe, do you accept that he loves you? Because if we can rest there, we get to rest. 
even when someone we love dies, even when we're betrayed, even when our health deteriorates, even when marriage is tough, even when a child goes astray, even when. It's like the love of God frees us to keep trusting Him, even when what we're facing seems impossible to us. Because if you're convinced that God loves you, then eventually you'll take Him at His word, regardless of your circumstances. 